the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Hello everybody and welcome back once again to another episode of the Math and Physics podcast. I'm your host Parker and I'm Ray and we welcome you back to episode number 109 where today similar to I think what we did a couple episodes ago but different we're going to be talking about our current research projects and most likely again fingers crossed most likely our research projects for going into grad school or at least something related to it I think it's going to be less about our actual research and more about just like the topics. Yes, yes, right? yes. Because yes, I think yes. it is a little bit difficult to communicate uh-huh. frontier work <laughs> to a general audience, even though, you know, it is very possible. Um, it just takes, I think, a lot of um, a lot of attention to detail as to how you communicate the steps mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, how to, how to get to where you are now in terms of the work you're doing. I think we can talk a little bit about also like how we are, because I feel like especially what you're doing is like literally frontier. What I'm doing is kind of very rarely done around the world too. So we can maybe talk a little bit about, you know, like how we feel and yeah. what it's like. <laughs> how we feel. No, no, feel as in like doing what, yeah. you know, at, at the position that we are. Because we're, we're still undergrad students, you know, yeah. we're nowhere and we're still at yeah. this level. So just like the possibility if someone like for anybody to do that, mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think we can go through that as well. But yeah, mainly I think focusing just on what it is we're doing, just the topics a little bit. Uh, so for all uh, returning listeners, <laughs> we just want to say, you know, we've been uh, we've been under the radar a little bit yeah. in terms of podcast activity uh, during the winter break. Well, you know, since we've recorded our last episode, um, we have had exams, which, you know, fourth year physics exams, a lot of work. And then after that, the winter break, I went to Ottawa, then Cuba, then Arizona. Wait, you had a crazy winter I know, break, I, was, yeah. I was all over the place. And um, so, yeah, we just, we haven't had time. And then I came back to Toronto, school started, and then, you know, now we're now we're here we're back <laughs> with another yeah. episode uh that's just how things go you know sometimes we made the we we made this podcast when we were first year students right? second. we finished first year oh march right it was march. in between first yeah, and second May, year so like that, we, right. we weren't even second year students yet mm-hmm. um and so it's a little bit hard to upkeep kind of the responsibility of the podcast as schoolwork increases in uh, density and frequency it's i mean it will i mean that's definitely one factor but i also think that now especially in fourth year we're going to grad school oh yeah you know we have a i feel like especially with me like switching and like there's a lot of stress you know so there are a lot of things on our mind that's i mean not to say that we don't obviously care about the podcast but obviously there are a lot more important things currently on our mind Mm -hmm. and i think that's fair to anybody who's been through school or has been you know doing something on the side while going through school like especially in our futures in our like quote unquote hopefully academic futures you know grad school and anything future is is pretty important obviously we've had you know exceptions such as george raboski last uh, last episode but in in general if you're going on the academic route you know you're gonna need to you're gonna need to yeah. mosey on and have some priorities so that's basically what went down 
what's kind of funny is that uh, I guess two things like uh, first thing good news is that I got accepted to a university for grad school um, to do well to work towards my PhD in astrophysics and deep learning um, that was just one school that I applied to so I, I haven't accepted yet I'm waiting for other schools to reply um, but I guess what's funny is that for the people who've been listening to the podcast at the beginning, you know, you started off by listening to Rinky Dink first year <laughs> physics students, and now you're listening to future PhD students talk about uh, their work and just interesting stuff in in physics. So. Yeah, that's actually uh, pretty crazy. This actually reminds me, and I'm uh, I'm gonna shout someone out that we don't know, but Andrew Dotson. You probably know his YouTube channel. I mean, if, if, if you guys are listeners of the podcast, you probably also know Andrew Dotson. He started his YouTube thing yeah. just like having fun with it. And now he's like a PhD and he's yeah. talking about all his experiences. Like he's, it's crazy to see where, because I used to remember him like six, seven years ago, you know, watching him when I was a kid being like, oh damn, he's, you know, in grad school doing his PhD or some jokes about physics. And now he's literally a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's Very crazy. Cool. So it's it's nice to be on that journey. So hopefully we get there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess we, we can just get started. Do you want to go? One first? thing before we start the podcast, the comment oh. <laughs> of the podcast. Comment of the year. <laughs> comment of the year, I guess, actually. I mean, that that would be a big summary, I think. We, we don't have a yearly uh, summary, but um, I'm just going to go for this comment. I really like Nanook's comment. Nanook says, this is the comment of the week. There you go. Thank you, Nanook. Manifestation. Fantastic comment. Thank you. Again, love all the other comments. That was obviously just a joke, but loving the uh, interaction that we get. I love all your support. I'm sure and any people that continue to listen, you know, mm-hmm. when uh, in, our, in our, I guess, non-posting days, we thank you. We thank you. And yeah, thank you for people continuing to follow the podcast Mm -hmm. and to listen because we have not dropped in followers in fact we've gone up in followers since you know since we stopped (laughs) posting Um, uh, well no we didn't stop posting we just you know the gap in between posts we can think (laughs) of it as a winter break a little long winter break how about that you know just just that's basically what that was and now we're back on it so let's let's get into it all right, do you want to talk about uh, computational sure. fluid dynamics? Sure, sure. So currently, um, what I am currently researching, again, just, just going to bring it up like that and then we'll go into it, is, uh, is as you very well rightly said, computational fluid dynamics. And it's basically exactly as it says. It's the problem, the, the whole problem with the field of fluid dynamics is that there's one major equation that governs how things move. Now, obviously, we can simplify that equation to, you know, linear convection, advection, uh, you know, dissipate, like all, all different types of equations, uh, shallow waters. But the main equations, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about, are the Navier-Stokes equations. And those basically describe, or at least our understanding of the different parts of a fluid's motion, taking into account all the different viscous forces, body forces, it basically uh, relates the force of a fluid within itself to the acceleration of the fluid. So literally Newton's second law, and that's the Navier-Stokes equation. And that equation is basically the full forefront of fluid dynamics. Because again, as I stated, what a differential equation is, and I'm pretty sure we have gotten to this in quite a few podcasts, uh, similar to the Navier-Stokes equation, 
it's basically a representative uh, a representative uh, equation where you are uh, defining some position or some velocity or some acceleration and these are all components part of this equation and the goal again is to basically model well how does this velocity or how does this position or how does this fluid move and therefore i think again we've got into this but i'm just reintroducing a lot of it the equation of motion right that's the whole goal the problem as we all know is that the navier stokes equations doesn't have a solution well because first of all it's highly nonlinear and we don't really know how to solve many nonlinear partial differential equations uh, let alone this really complex one so what do we do well we let the computer handle it so hence the birth of computational fluid dynamics so obviously as you know with you know computers especially getting so powerful just recently a lot of this work is still you know quite new so everything that's being done is still you know relatively fresh it's not like we're breaking relativity or, or or finding you know the laws of motion of loop quantum gravity something that's been done for 200 years kind of thing so it's pretty interesting to be testing something that's not only tested in the like not even that much tested in the field itself so just a little introduction to what cfd really is and i think like the way the way i picture um what you're doing right it's like it's too hard to actually figure out so you use numerical methods to solve it and so when you solve something analytically with just you know you perform the integral and you get a solution mm -hmm. that has essentially infinite signal to noise ratio right. right it's an exact solution yeah exactly right um but in you know when things are too difficult and you rely on numerical methods what happens is that when you discretize discretize yeah your your interval right or your domain um, depending on the size of the individual steps or whatever you want to call them, that will propagate error through your solution, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. And so the smaller the sub-intervals are, the less error you have, but the harder it is to compute. Exactly. So it's this, it's this continuous trade-off between how precise do you want to be and how fast do you want it to take. That's literally, yeah, that's literally the whole game right now because the whole question is a threshold accuracy. Like the whole thing that we start before solving anything is what's your threshold. And usually it's anywhere from 10 to the minus 6 to 10 to the minus 10 because just, just, just setting something pretty small saying that, hey, we're pretty accurate. And again, it all depends on your solution, right? Maybe something is stellar magnitudes and then you don't really care. Like, you yeah. know, you can use very very simple methods of you know very large time steps or whatever just to really quickly get it done because mm -hmm. you don't really care too much about the accuracy mm -hmm. but on the other hand if you are trying to you know increase the speed of a car around a corner by five kilometers an hour while it's already going at 350 kilometers an hour obviously exaggerating here that will matter ever so slightly in increasing the accuracy or decreasing the amount of or, or increasing the amount of time that you use to compute is, it is that what like f1 engineers do cfd like, yeah well, well like... so nowadays actually because of how powerful cfd is every team gets a limited amount of hours <laughs> to run their simulation what? because it's so good yeah oh damn so, so yeah the, the, <laughs> there are actually insane. there are a lot of models that you can use in computational fluid dynamics and that's basically where like the whole kind of field comes from so f so for example Wait, formula I, one cars are you saying that they would be too good if they got unlimited hours 
to run their simulations? Well, I want to say too good, but they would be able to understand a lot more about their car. Really? Because so the problem is... They're limiting their knowledge. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. They're like, because you have to understand that bigger teams with a lot of money can just like spend a lot of money yeah. and then just... Yeah. haven't because again it's it's expensive right yeah. like it's still like electricity and like but it, money wise it's it, expensive it is a sport where like the economy really well yeah influences no, that's, 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 the, yeah 100 you know, 100 so i mean obviously i mean that's a little yeah. off track but yeah that, that's basically another application <laughs> yeah. right but the the power of computer of cft is that there's a different idea of using the navier stokes equations in every application so for example in what i'm doing right now which is computational aero like aerodynamics we use, again, I don't want to like really get into it, but like we use something called the Reynolds average Navier-Stokes equation, some, some type of equations. And on the other hand, if I would want to solve propulsive um, equations of motion, so for example, gases burning together in a combustion chamber, this equation doesn't work anymore because this is more through time. So then we use a different equation. And similarly, if you're, for example, you know, doing the same thing on a car, a Formula One car, you would use another different equation. So, because all of these are basically like simplifications of Navier-Stokes, because no one's really solving the direct Navier-Stokes equations every right. time we're running a simulation, because right. again, it's very computationally heavy. And just like when you do like some type of, you're, you're modeling a situation when you're doing like simple thermodynamic problems, mm -hmm. um, it's like you have a box and the volume stays fixed. And so your equation changes when you keep the volume fixed, right? And it becomes a simplified version right. of, right. or if you're keeping the pressure fixed, or if it has to be adiabatic, then your equations simplify mm -hmm. for the model that you're trying to The biggest replicate. example is incompressible versus compressible equations, right? Like some people just assume incompressibility and just take it as is, as is, is because it's far easier to mm. compute. So again, like, throw assumptions in there and you can definitely ease out the equation and therefore exponentiate the amount of, or, or exponentially reduce the amount of time that you need to solve it. And this is like ubiquitous in physics. Is that the word ubiquitous? But because <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I know I, what I, you I mean think, though. Yeah. Um, because in last year in our astro course, yeah. you, you remember like the polytropes, the polytrope equation. Oh yeah, yeah. Right? The P, For the, every index number, right. it's like a different assumption right, that you're making. Right, it's, right. In this, in the polytrope, let's say, in, I don't remember what the actual indices were, but oh, it's like n equals three. Yeah. It's adiabatic or something like mm -hmm. that, and mm -hmm. then it changes for every different type of star that you're trying to model. Yeah. So I think that's kind like of that, right? It was kind yeah, of similar. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Where, a little bit, a little bit. Where every single model is not going to be perfect, but there are some assumptions that will be better than others. And again, it's it's all a question about accuracy, right? It's yeah. all a question about how much you really want to get out of it, yeah. and that's the whole thing. But again, just because I'm talking about how many people use it doesn't mean again that's where all this research comes in that it's perfect. Far from it, right? There are a lot of methods that are currently still being studied because there are a lot of things that are not understood. For example. And I think a lot of people got this turbulence, right? Turbulence is still a factor that's not very readily understood. Like, for example, I think this is a common, uh, a, a, a common example taken to uh, explain why the Navier-Stokes still don't make perfect sense. In a right angle turn for a river, I think, I think we've spoken about this before, but, but let's say a river is turning, mm -hmm. right? And it has a right angle in, uh, in its path. The Navier-Stokes equation state that at the edge the speed of the river is infinity. <laughs> the corner. Yeah. At, the, at the corner, at the corner, yeah. sorry, not the edge, at the corner. So obviously that doesn't make sense, right? So there yeah. are some problems, there are some infinities, there are some problems with, or misunderstandings of turbulence. 
So either we have to add something into the equation or there's obviously some misunderstanding of how it's working. So there's a lot of that that also goes in there. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit. I know I've spoken very generally about it so far. I'm going to talk a little bit about how it actually goes down a little after. But yeah, that's the basic general idea of CFD, right? And yeah, I can, I, I can get into it in a sec, but let's, let's hear what, uh, what you have to say about your general idea. Maybe we can go back and forth. Gen general idea. Okay, so I, I stumbled upon adaptive optics last summer where I was attending these talks and somebody in the faculty gave a talk about adaptive optics and I've had heard about adaptive optics from our TA last year and our we're doing astro labs mm -hmm. practicals yeah. I guess Pr you can say same thing. anyways he, he showed us a video of a point well, spread point function, spread, yeah. yeah. Point spread function <laughs> being corrected. <laughs> that was like the second last and, class, right? And I, yeah, I had yeah. no idea what I was really looking at. Well, you know, I knew it was a it was a star a point source, um, and he tried to explain to us how it worked, and I kind of got it. But came the summer, once came the summer, uh, and <laughs> I I heard that talk, yeah. and I was like, you know what, this is kind of cool. And at the time, I had to I had to pick a topic for my fourth year research project. Because as a um, astronomy and astrophysics specialist, you must pick a topic in fourth year and do a research project. And then at the end, you know, you do a presentation and a report. Just quickly, I just wanna, yeah. to everyone listening who's in university, in your fourth year, now it's amazing that it's required for you, mm -hmm. but in your fourth year of university, you should, I mean, obviously, if you are trying to go into an academic stream in the future, like grad school, you 100% should be aiming to apply for like some sort of bachelor thesis or like fourth year research program or some, I mean, the year would be far better than the summer, but either works because number one, the recommendation from the professor and number two, simply that exposure can like be exponentially greater for grad school applications than not having that, not having any research, for example. Mm. So it's really good that you guys are forced to do it because yeah. in my in my program, I'm not in, in the astro specialist. In my program, I don't have that force. So kind of sucks. I had to do it myself. But anyways, you should highly recommend it. That's Sorry, true. continue. That's very true. So uh, during the summer, I was doing research for the university and I had to decide if you know if I want to continue with the person or with my supervisor that I was with during the summer or if I want to do something completely different and I already knew that I wanted to do something different but there are so many options literally anything that you want to study you can mm -hmm. somebody in the faculty or at least at U of T there are so many profs that research different things that there's you know whatever you want to do there's definitely somebody here who can supervise you and come up with a project um, that would be meaningful and so having listened to that talk on adaptive optics I said you know what let me let me just send an email send a message and see if there's a possibility that I can go into adaptive optics in fourth year. My other choice was to go into machine learning, do a machine learning project, which I was also at the time studying on my own because I was interested. And, you know, summer chugs along and finally I decided to, do, to go into adaptive optics. Now, boom, 
How do you start a project? How do you start a research project? Mate, in, what is adaptive optics? In, Nobody knows yet. I'm I'm, I'm okay, getting okay, to okay, that. Okay, I'm okay, getting okay. to that. So how do you start a project on something that you know nothing about? Yeah. Okay. You, you know, you have to do a lot of reading papers mm -hmm. because adaptive optics isn't necessarily something that you could just Google mm -hmm. and learn everything about. Um, and number two is talk to the people at school who already know about it. Very useful um, tip. Because, you know, how else are you going to do it? So that's what I did. And it turns out adaptive optics is a very deep subject, a lot of complicated stuff, and it's a mix of many different subjects put together to accomplish one goal. Well, there are many different science goals, but the goal of adaptive optics is to essentially correct for the atmosphere. If the atmosphere wasn't there, we would not need adaptive optics whatsoever. Bang. At all. So the, the atmosphere is the reason that we're here, that we can breathe, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that I'm here and I can study <laughs> and, Good reason. and Good do reason. research. Good reason. So if you think of light in space coming from stars... There is not much in space compared to on Earth in the atmosphere. There's going to be dust, some molecules flying around, but it's very um, low density. So the light coming out of stars, the, um, the wave fronts is what we call them. They come out spherically from a star and they just propagate perfectly flat, undisturbed through space. If you take the distance to a star versus its radius, you know, other than the sun, you can essentially take its size as zero, just a single point. Mm -hmm. That approximation is totally valid because if you take a trillion, billion, gajillion kilometers and you divide like one million by that, right? One million, you're going to get... Something that's basically zero. So you can take the size of the star coming in to be zero. But first kind of uh, outside source of physics coming in is quantum mechanics. When you take a picture of something, the light passes through an aperture which has a given size. And if you were to learn about wave functions and photons flying around and if you were to send a photon through an aperture of a given radius what you'll see the the probability distribution of that photon on your screen could be a ccd or you know whatever the probability distribution is called an airy function and an airy function kind of looks like a gaussian but it goes up there's a peak in the middle and then it it ripples outwards in a two-dimensional... Like oscillates outwards? Yeah, what like it, it, there's a peak at the top in the, in the center, and then it drops off, but then it doesn't drop off to zero. It drops off, and then it ripples in like concentric Again, circles. sorry, when you say ripples, you mean, you mean like oscillates? Yeah, like yeah okay, the function okay. like ripples oh. down to zero, Okay, essentially. That's interesting. Um, so theoretically, if you were to take a picture hmm. of a star, of a point source what you should see is exactly that and mm. you know if you don't believe me you could just google it <laughs> that, that is what you see 
if you have a really good camera, you see the concentric rings. They're called diffraction rings. And essentially, the airy function is what you get when you are at the diffraction limit, when your telescope is at the diffraction limit. Okay. And the diffraction limit is lambda over D, where lambda is the observed um, wavelength that you're looking at of mm -hmm. light. And D is the diameter of your telescope. But why would you want this? Why would you want the airy function? Like, what, what, why would you want the diffraction rate? Because the airy function is the most... It's, it's the theoretically best representation that you can observe of, of a the, star. Of the star. Yeah. Anything other than really? the airy function is a worse representation. And how, how do we come to that conclusion? Is there like a theory or something? Or like how, no, the, yeah, that, that feels like, well, that's, that, how do we come to the conclusion that the star is best represented in, or best represented by this? Because I feel like you would want to negate the oscillations though, or something. I don't no, know, the, just from my noob the thing is, understanding. The thing is, you can't because of quantum mechanics right that's like saying that's like saying oh you want to break the uncertainty principle no but you're right? saying the quantum mechanical effects only come into play when you're at the diffraction limit so i'm saying just don't well, go there no well <laughs> no okay just how about this yeah, maybe yeah. I'm no, not i understand yeah, yeah, i understand yeah, what yeah. you're saying how about this if you have a very this is hard to explain yeah no it might so be let's Sorry say let's say you have a you let's say you have a really bad telescope okay then you'll see like a point, right? And it might be like spread out a lot, like a very... Like blurry um, or no, no, not, not blurry. Not, it doesn't have word. to be blurry, but it, it's kind of like, it's just spread out and it looks like what you would expect. Like a, a lot of pixels to, on this, like... It looks like what you would expect a star to look like. Okay. Right? Um, but if... So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying yeah, to think no, of like no, the no, best logical way to, to explain it. So the, the theoretical best, it's not, it's not even a best representation of a star. It's when you look at a star, even with your eye, if your eye was good enough, you would see the diffraction disks, right? Does oh. that make sense? Because photons have to pass through the aperture of your eye. Mm -hmm. And so on the screen of, your, of the back of your retina, you are getting this airy disc. You are getting them, but it's just the optics in your eye aren't good enough to resolve to that level. Do you know? Okay, does that so make you're sense? saying this happens regardless. Regardless, for sure. No, it's like it's like the double slit experiment. You know, like, like. Oh yeah, that's that's not, that's a really nice example to give. Yeah, it's like, like the double slit inter experiment. Interference between photons. Like it how Like yeah, no. Cause get that. Interference between photons cause, um, like, this very special, um, what's it called? Intensity distribution, right? I know what, yeah, I don't know. But if you were to take the size, forward. if you were to take the size of the slits mm, and make them really big, mm. what would you see, right? You would just see kind of a, <laughs> two bands of light and no real interference because you only see that interference when you get to the quantum mechanical okay, so you actually level, want right? that okay i you think now i understand it. that okay you do want so you it. actually yeah, want you that do. okay you do okay exactly okay and, and you can actually test the performance of your telescope based off of how 
close it is to yeah, the Aries function. Gonna, that's cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so okay. if it if it doesn't look like it like it if you don't see the ripples at all, then your telescope can't resolve mm-hmm. what it should look like, right? But if you can see the disc, then you know you're getting pretty close. That is exactly. interesting. That is a really interesting. Go. And so that's actually when you compare the point spread function, which we call PSF. If you compare the PSF to the theoretical PSF, which looks like an area function, you get something called a Strel ratio, which is basically just how close is it to right. Makes the sense. area function. Makes so sense. Strel ratio of 100% just means that you are observing at the diffraction limit and your telescope just can't get better. Theoretically, right. physically, physically, cannot get past the diffraction limit. And so how do you, how do you get a better... Uh, a tighter point spread function that looks more like a point well it's lambda over d right so you can either decrease lambda the wavelength that you're looking at or you can increase the diameter so that's why people build big telescopes is to get tighter (laughs) point spread functions so there you go well damn yeah so now you have this problem where, okay, you take a, take out your phone, you take a picture of a star. It looks like a dot, right? It doesn't look like an area right. function, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there are several factors. Number one, the diameter of your phone is not that big. So the area function is going to be actually very spread out and it's going to be very hard to observe the uh, ripples, ripples, right? Right. But number two, and this is definitely the limiting factor of this process, is the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so when light, obviously light interacts with matter and, you know, the atmosphere is made of matter. A lot of it. And, you know, matter that's traveling at different speeds in different directions, right? Different densities, the further you go out. Um, And so there are very weird interactions going on with light as it passes through from space where it, where it's perfectly flat as soon as it hits the atmosphere it starts you know getting aberrations and next thing you know you take a picture of it and you simply it's impossible to observe a perfect point spread function because the atmosphere just messed it up so bad mm-hmm. and so adaptive optics says Listen, if we can measure the effect of the atmosphere on these flat wave fronts coming in and we can just reverse that effect onto the incoming light, then we should be able to see the reconstructed wave fronts that should look perfect because they come they came in from space. Yeah. From a perfect point source of light. That's sick. Right? So, <clears throat> turns out it is possible to do so. And it's being done right now. Um, so how do you do it? Well, it's a closed loop control system. And so here's the, you know, the second outside source of science is, is control systems, which is something that electrical engineers learn about, computer science. It's everywhere. Like I mean, it's in, it's in, it's it in is, aerospace too. It like is, yeah. So, everything. so a control system is essentially, well, you have like an open loop control system where you provide an input it gets transformed through your system and then your system provides an output. However, a closed loop control system is where the output becomes the input and it continues to run continuously. Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can 
already see how adaptive optics is a closed loop system where you measure the atmosphere, you correct the light, but the correction that you see gets fed back into the... I, sh I should actually explain the components first before Go I explain it. the yeah, system. I'm a little that would make, a, that would make yeah. a lot more sense, okay? So you have light coming in from above. You have a primary mirror. The light bounces off of the, prim the primary mirror, and at this point, the light is already aberrated, right? It doesn't look good. It bounces off of the primary mirror onto the secondary mirror. The secondary mirror is deformable, which means that it's riddled with uh, actuators that can push and pull. Mm -hmm. And the phase offset of light can be at most one full wavelength, right? Because if you offset light by a phase of two pi, then it just looks the same. Right, right. right. So your actuators only need to push by half lambda and pull by half lambda so that you can get a full range of phase correction. Okay. Valid. So the light bounces off of the secondary mirror. The paths of the light get corrected, right? The phases get matched up because the mirror gets uh, put into a shape that would do exact that exact correction. Mm -hmm. Then the light passes to your telescope and gets split. Sorry, not the telescope. To, the to, the, to the camera. Right. And it gets split before the camera. You have, a, you have a camera that's a science camera that you use to do science. And you have something called a wavefront sensor. The wavefront sensor measures the aberrations of the atmosphere. This happens before it goes into the CCD or the before the camera? At the same time. Right? Light travels at the speed of light. So. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, that it, works. it happens at the same time. Now, that, 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 that is a point that I will cover in a second. Um, but yeah, light goes into the wavefront sensor. The wavefront sensor, what it does is it measures the slopes of the wavefront. And <laughs> there's a reason why. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so here's your system, right? That I just, that I just wrote the blueprint of, mm -hmm. okay. You have a wavefront sensor, you have a deformable mirror and you have light passing through the system. Okay? Right. So I see it. Light comes in, wavefront sensor measures the slopes. I'll explain what that means later, but it measures the slopes. The measurement is an input that gets converted via linear transformation to commands. Okay. A signal that gets sent to the mirror. The mirror takes those commands, shifts all the actuators to their desired positions. Mm -hmm. light bounces off of the mirror new light gets bounced off the mirror next thing you know it looks better because you corrected for light that should have right the light that you're correcting for is already in the camera right so the correction that you applied is being seen by new light new light yeah that may have a different aberration because the atmosphere, atmosphere evolves right 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 so the new light bounces off of the deformable mirror. Wavefront sensor measures the residual slopes. How far away was our correction from the present value? Okay. Residual slopes, that 
command gets sent into, sorry, that measurement turns into a new command, sends to the mirror new positions for the actuators, and that is the closed loop, right? So does it like keep getting better or is it? It doesn't keep getting better. Or is it always just? Well, it it does initially, but here's the thing. The time, the evolution time scale of the atmosphere is one millisecond. Whoa, that's fast, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, that's pretty fast but, for the atmosphere. But I guess so. the deformable mirror can change its shape in Definitely one uh, nanosecond. Nano, nine. Sorry, no, microsecond. Sorry. Micro, micro, that makes more sense. Microsecond. That would be, so, nano would be great. So microsecond. The, the deformable mirror can change 1,000 times within the time scale of evolution of the atmosphere, yeah. which means that, yeah. okay, that, which that, means that yeah. you can't violate causation. You can't correct the light no, you can't. as it's coming in. No. You can only correct after you measure the light. Yeah. But because you can measure and correct faster than the atmosphere evolves, right. you will get a good enough correction right, right, for right. the light that's coming in. So is it usually like the last correction that it does before the atmosphere evolves is usually the best? I'm well, the, the, the atmosphere evolves continuously. Right? Well, yeah, but I'm saying like, if, if like you're saying you have a thousand steps right B between every atmospheric you, evolution so is like the n equals thousand solution like the best no so it doesn't it doesn't correct so it's not like the atmosphere is static light passes through it you correct 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 and then the atmosphere changes after one millisecond right so as you're doing your 1,000 corrections within the time it's still scale, changing. it's still changing. You're right. No, you're right. It's yeah, still yeah, continuously yeah. changing. Yeah, so, that was a so, question. so you're just right. you're you're chasing the perfect solution, but the perfect solution is always moving. So, you 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 can get close to it, and of course, if you can get a mirror that can deform faster, then you'll get closer and closer to the actual solution, but you'll never be exactly there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so there you go. How, so how do we how do we even do this? Right. I, I've spoken about this beautiful idea where we can just completely eliminate the atmosphere from our measurements. But, you know, how does this even happen and is it even good? So, first of all, wow. there's something I didn't talk about and it's called the interaction matrix. And the interaction matrix is the solution to your system. OK, it's a big deal. If you have an interaction matrix, you can take measurements of the atmosphere and directly convert them into commands to the deformable mirror. Um, the problem, the thing that I'm researching right now is that to build a, an interaction matrix, and I might say command matrix sometimes, the command matrix is the transpose of the interaction matrix. Um, but they're basically the same. Um, so what I'm researching is that when you want to get an interaction matrix, you need references, right? Like what should this, let's say you have a point source and you're taking a picture of the point source and it's a, like, it's a man-made point source. You know what it should look like. Right. And then let's say you apply on purpose, you push one single actuator on the mirror you should know what that looks like, right? Because you know what you know how far you're pressing on the mirror. Mm -hmm. You know what the source looks like. So you know what you should be seeing on your camera. 
right? Here's the thing. The telescopes that are being built right now are Cassegrain telescopes, which have convex mirrors. And if you studied optics, um, you'd know that if you have a Cassegrain telescope, you can't bounce light off of the secondary mirror without it going to infinity. There's no way you can do that because the focal plane is behind the mirror. Right. If you have a concave mirror, there is a focal plane in front of the mirror, which means you can send light from that focal plane, bounce it off of the mirror and into your camera. And that works perfectly fine. But you can't do that with a convex mirror. And so the only sources that we can look at are sources in space. And the problem with sources in space is that they pass through the atmosphere, which means we don't know what they actually look like. Mm. So how do we build an interaction matrix if we have no reference points? Right. Real quick interlude on the interaction matrix. The interaction matrix is, it is it's a two by two matrix. And wait, wouldn't it be like N by for nominal? Sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, I mean, it's a two dimensional matrix. Oh, right, right. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Rows and columns. That's right, it. That makes sense. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> okay, not, like not two by two. Not two by two. That makes sense. The columns each column in this matrix is one actuator. Right, so n, yeah. And right. each row is one pixel on your wavefront sensor. Oh, so it's like pixels times n. So here's the visual that you need to have, okay? When you press, let's say, actuator one, and you look through the wavefront sensor, what are the values of the slopes right so if you let's say you press right in the middle of the mirror that means you're going to be sending light to the left of that actuator more to the left right it's going to bounce off of it and bounce mm -hmm. further away so the slopes on the left of it are going to be negative and the slopes on the right of it are going to be positive if you're just looking in the x direction okay just the x and then of course if you go higher it's going to be less of a tilted slope, right? The closer you get to it, the more pronounced yeah, the yeah, slopes yeah, yeah, are going yeah, to be yeah. tilted. Right. right. And then you can also look at it in the Y direction where above it, it's going to be positively influenced and below it, it's going to be negatively influenced. And so if you look through the, the eyes of the wavefront sensor, which, has, which is a camera at the end of the day, it takes pictures of the slopes. You see each pixel... Let's say you just label them uh, like, a, like row wise and column wise, one, two, three, four, five. What you do is you look at the value of each of those pixels and you say, okay, here it's like it's positive and then it becomes negative. And then next row it's positive and then becomes negative after the actuator. So what you do is you, instead of having that as a 2D image, you just put it into a vector. You have the X slopes and then you append to that the Y slopes and that is one row of your interaction matrix. And then you do that for each actuator. Oh, damn. And that's how you build your interaction matrix. Because what happens... Big matrix. Exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so what happens is that Jesus. you take the transpose of that. What do you have? You have rows that are actuators and columns that are pixels. And so 
when you take a measurement, it's a vector of pixels that you multiply into your interaction matrix. Now it's your command matrix. Mm. And what do you get? You get a vector that has the same amount of inputs as the amount, or sorry, the same amount of outputs yeah. as the amount of actuators that you have, right? Because oh, the because the rows are actuators. Oh right, rows are actuators, right, right. So now you now you have some column, right? your output is some n-dimensional vector that has the same amount of uh, elements as you have actuators, and it turns out those elements are commands that go to each actuator. So if your if your element is positive, you push. If your element is negative, you pull. And so that's how you take a snapshot of the atmosphere in terms of slopes. You transform it into commands that go to your uh, actuators, and then boom. Um, and essentially, it's a minimization problem, right? Because you want the slopes to be zero. You want to take a picture of the of, of the light, it. right? Exactly. You right. want to take a picture of the light. And you want the slopes to be all zero. So what you're doing is that if the slope is not zero, then if the slope is positive, you pull on the actuator so that it becomes negative. If the slope is negative, you push on the actuator to make it positive. You're just solving a linear system of equations where you want it all to equal zero. Wow, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of details in this <laughs> that I'm skipping because it's just hard. Um, but yeah. I will highlight one method though. Actually, no, that's too, that's too hard. I'm going to highlight what I'm doing actually. So what I'm doing in my year long project is I'm going into Python and there's this package that some guy wrote. He's actually a very smart guy um, where you can simulate adaptive optics systems in Python. What does simulation mean for this project? It means that whatever you produce in a simulation has infinite signal to noise ratio. There is no noise in a simulation. Right. Which means that if you were able to simulate your system perfectly and you can produce a simulated interaction matrix, you can just take that matrix and use it for your actual system. But here's the problem. When you install an adaptive secondary mirror and a wavefront sensor. There are things called misregistrations where, you know, in Python, your simulation, the mirror and the wavefront sensor are perfectly aligned. Everything is squared off and, you know, very, you know, it's simulated. It doesn't, you don't take into account real world things. But in a real system, your mirror could be half a degree rotated over it could be tilted by one millimeter backwards it could be you know sheared uh it could be a little bit too close which changes the optics right by one millimeter damn things called these little things called misregistrations and these things obviously affect your interaction matrix because if you're tilted and you push on an actuator you're going to be activating different pixels on the wavefront sensor than if you were correctly aligned and so there's this algorithm that I'm working with. And what it does is it takes a simulated system and it takes a measured interaction matrix. The problem with a measured interaction matrix is that let's say you're, you're just poking and pushing 
pushing and pulling actuators on your telescope with a source that is in space that passes through the atmosphere, there's going to be noise on right. your measurements because yeah. it's passing through the atmosphere. So you're going to get an interaction matrix that looks very noisy. And so what this new algorithm is called sprints, what it does is it tries to take your simulated system and tweak it so that it matches best the measured interaction matrix. Because once you can extract the, what the misregistrations are, you can just apply them to your simulated system and then you have the, an actual thing in your an actual replication of the physical system. Right. And once you, have, once you have that replication, you can just throw the measured one in the trash and use the simulated one because the simulated one has zero noise. That's what you're that, working on. That's what I'm doing right now. And it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. I'll so where are you right now? Uh, right now? I mean, it would be hard to orient yourself within the scope of this project. Or, or orient you, yourself, not myself. Do you realistically <laughs> think that... Uh, I think... By the end of the year? Or you think you m might be getting into this in grad school? No. So I've changed my goals along the way from the beginning. And my supervisor told me this from the beginning that it's going to be harder than I think and he was right um, and so right now there's an adaptive optics system at U of T that I'm working with in the basement of uh, the astrophysics building and my goal by the end of the project is to just simulate that system which I have done to some degree and to run the sprint algorithm and to see if, you know, I can produce a better interaction matrix than the one that they measured themselves. The one that they measured is actually good because, you know, they control the whole system. So they can essentially right. get, they can get pretty close to the actual interaction matrix. Um, but I'm going to be using the one that they measured as an empirical um, measurement of the interaction matrix. And I'm going to be plugging that into the sprint algorithm and seeing if I can produce a better one. And if I can, then there you go. GG's. That's it. Published paper. That's it. That'll be pretty sick. There you go. Because actually, one thing that's pretty cool is that the sprint algorithm is theoretically correct, but it has never been tested. So I'm testing it Woo. right now. One of the firsts. Yeah. So I might, be able, firsts. I might be able to publish a paper on it. I guess I'll, the paper will just be, you know, the validity of the sprint algorithm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's nice. And I'll publish my results. That's nice. That's nice. Go. Yeah. Well, is that is that your AO? I can talk more about it, yeah, but no, you I know. Guess, yeah, I guess I guess <laughs> it, we can. Yeah, it, we gotta, it is just about the details. Thank you to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you guys have liked it so far, then go check out uh, some of really cool courses on Brilliant.org. Some of them in software development, where they talk about algorithm fundamentals, all the way down to the basics of programming with Python. So go check them out at brilliant.org forward slash MPP. And the first 200 subscribers will get a 20% off the premium subscription for the year. So yeah, go check out Brilliant for, you know, more information, more curiosity, and hopefully more knowledge. Now back to the podcast. Voila. Um, so yeah, my research is not as uh, like, you know, groundbreaking for like Final Frontier kind of thing it's more investigating some methods that are already there because it's 
not very well understood. So where do I start from? Let's start from, I'm not going to push it too far, but let's start just a little bit about computational physics because I think that's, that's like really important and really cool for a lot of people. So especially nowadays with code getting as popular as it is, I think every child knows Python. Every child. <laughs> I'm just saying, man, there's like camps where like eight-year-olds are learning code, you know? So yeah. I'm saying, and they're teaching it in it, elementary schools now. <laughs> what the I'm, hell, I'm, you know? Or high school. No, schools, no way, elementary. schools? Middle, maybe middle. middle. I mean, isn't it the same thing? Every no, year? I think it's called, like, I think part of the math curriculum is going to be computer science. I wow. Think, something like that. Well, I mean, it's good because that is an inevitable future. Uh, you know, no, no, understanding how to program is quite important for logical purposes and just for, you know, knowledge yeah. purposes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, Python is the most readily, and uh, it's not necessarily true, but Python is a highly physics-based language. Uh, like science well well not physics based but for physics like you can use it very well for physics i, th I think the reason you could do that is because it's so easy to like learn well you know it I mean? is like, but object oriented languages kind of mesh well with physics problems because it's and oh, no right so object oriented languages do uh mesh better and python just happens to be like the easiest one <laughs> you know, it's the easiest one to understand, yeah. easiest one to replicate. And yeah. a lot of times it'll just, it'll just eat your errors up, you know, like it won't even, yeah. that's almost the thing that I don't like about it, but it's very easy to understand. And as I mentioned, replicate, there are others, Matplot, no, not Matplot, what is it called? Mat Lab. Matlab, um, Fortran, old one, not really used anymore. C++ is a very popular one that's used currently as well, but again a much heart like higher level of skill required for that i was recommended that if you want to learn about like computers uh, the bare bones mm -hmm. you know like how computers work learn c yeah c is just c c is where everything comes from yeah like by, by, i mean python is based on that like c's were literally like mother of languages because like one Godfather thing, that, one thing that you don't really have to worry about in python is like memory um, or compilations, bro. Like literally nothing. You don't have to worry right. about anything in Python. But it takes care of everything. Like you don't have to compile it separately. Like you don't have to. It's 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 just the easiest piece of equipment that you can use to under to to do something programming related. But what's the word I'm looking for? Is it like memory slots? You know, like when you assign a variable, that gets stored in. You I know, mean, I get like some, I know what you mean, like some like, it, like an ID, yeah, like it's get, called an it ID. Gets an ID. Yeah, 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 I know what you mean. So, and that's like very fundamental to like when you learn C, it's like <laughs> you learn about, and that's the thing in Python, you can just mess around with the ID, yeah, and it's no, okay. You just don't, you it go just, X equals matter. Y, Y equals X, like you, you, know can, like you, you can literally do X equals Y equals five, which, like. <laughs> To be honest, if you because and, and and why could be like a floating point, and you can all of a sudden have it as have it be a string, you know, like it's so like there's no variable assigning. That's a big thing that you probably no. never learned before. No. Like in Java, you have to actually say int i equals. Yeah, I've you know, you actually videos. have to define like small uh, yeah. things like that. Change it. Anyways, again, way off topic, but um, Python is very understandable. So if you don't know a programming language, it's very easy to start with, but I don't know. Maybe I'm not the best person to ask which ones to start with because I actually don't know if Python is the best one to start with because, again, because it's so easy, it doesn't let you get the real understanding of what the programming language is trying to do. 
you know i started personally with java that was far better i think in terms of understanding maybe c would be c is pretty hard though i've heard because um anyways so <laughs> back to cft right back to a, or at least a little bit of computational physics what's the purpose of what i do well the whole purpose is solving a partial differential equation so there are a lot of steps that we take to get there uh to learn the different parts of python how to integrate again integrate when i'm saying i'm saying numerically integrate that means Remember the examples that we learned in Integration 101 when it's like, oh, we convert them into trapezoids and then we add them up. That's literally how you integrate numerically, right? So you actually break them up into small trapezoids and then you add them up. Well, there are different ways. Oh, of course. They're way... They're quadratic is way better. Quadratic Simpson's rule is what you just mentioned. Instead of using lines, you use quadratic, so literal quadratic equations at each section. And you have to match up the slopes at each point is that no it's, it's, it's literally it? just an equation made like i, I don't know it's no yeah but i'm saying at, at each like interval do they match the slopes is that how they get like a smooth i mean like, if the intervals are small enough i'm assuming the quadratic like it, it can be approximated very well i i don't i don't know too much about the mechanics of uh the solutions i simply or, or the uh, or the methods i simply know what they do and because again that's really all you need to know in numerical uh, methods that really what they do so there are many ways to, you know, do certain things, for example, differentiating. Now, this is where the big thing comes in, right? How do you how do you do a derivative? Why is it so important? Well, because differential equations. Remember, everything <laughs> in physics is more or less a partial differential equation. And our goal is to get x of t equals something. We're trying to see how does this, whatever we're modeling, move or move through time such as velocity or accelerate or anything and any any derivatives of position we are interested in because that's the whole purpose of basically physics right predicting the future and the past that's 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 physics so differential equations can be solved very simply as well um i believe it's the it's the original definition of how we learn from the epsilon no not the epsilon delta that's not what it's called like the like the regular definition of the derivative you know like f of x plus h minus f yeah. of x over h <laughs> the yeah. classic so there are different that is a limit though right there that is a we, limit didn't we prove derivatives via epsilon, epsilon delta? Like, yeah. that's i think that's how we proved uh, epsilon delta so that's how you prove certain derivatives and that's literally how you numerically compute derivatives again it's not act that's the forward difference uh, what's actually used for to get a higher order of accuracy is called the central difference method so it's f of x plus h minus f of x minus h over 2h so it's actually a higher order accurate um anyways we don't i i, I don't really want to get too much into the math of it i just want to get through the explaining because the explaining is really interesting so again solving a pde how do we do this so there are two main methods, two main approaches to solving a PDE, a fully discrete method and a, and a semi-discrete method. Now, a fully discrete method, again, when I say PDE, I'm just going to be talking about position and time because those are generally in physics the most used uh, components. So uh, for this PDE, the idea is, okay, we wish to break it down into two separate ways. So a fully discrete method would discretize space and time together and usually it's not very accurate but it's it's good if you if if if, if you want to do like low level of uh, orders of accuracy because usually space and time their errors can like mix up and it becomes quite complicated so that's a very low level i'm not going to talk about that today 
what we're going to be talking about is the semi-discrete approach. And this is the approach taken by every computational physics class or method, really. Because, again, it's, it's far or far higher in accuracy, and it also makes a lot more sense uh, because it's, it's just easier to understand. So here's the idea. Again, most uh, PDEs, we're just going to take like one-dimensional like time and position because that's just, just like the easiest to understand. The first step in discretizing or, yeah, well, discretizing a PDE is spatial derivatives. So any time you see a dx dt or any spatial derivative that comes up in your partial differential equation, you're basically estimating that with a derivative operator. Now, this is where all of this comes into play. So think about this, right? In a central difference scheme where, let's say we're at some point, to find the derivative of that point, we're taking the function value just right next to it, minus the function value to the left of it, and then we're dividing by 2h, whatever, to, 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 get, to get the derivative, to get the slope, right? So the idea is, um, if we have an a matrix that represents these numbers, so for example, if we're taking one to the right and one to the left, that's just one, one, and that's just gonna be repeated on the off diagonals. Because what we're again doing is where every point that we're at, we're mm -hmm. taking the points next to them, right? And those are positive coefficients what about the and edge? all the others are zero. What about the edges? Very good question. What about the edges? So the edges are usually where things always get confusing because now we have problems. Because at the edge, you can't take x plus h because now you're already at the edge. So usually at the, um, these are called boundary schemes. So on boundary schemes, usually you have to do something else. You have to usually forego some accuracy. And the only way to do so is usually to use backward difference methods or forward difference methods. So instead of using the central difference, like one to the right, one to the left, you just use one to the left, yeah. forego some accuracy, but yeah. that's the only way to do so it. So the, the left endpoint is going to use forward difference. Exactly, and, yeah. and the right endpoint uses backward difference. Yeah. Again, this is for a very simple one-dimensional, yeah, yeah. very, very <laughs> simple understanding, but yeah, that's, that's the idea. So this is your spatial discretization matrix, right, that basically represents this. And again, it's very simple, the example that I gave you with central difference, but you can see how different methods can definitely get a lot more con confusing. I'm not going to get into them because that's basically where my research is, but it definitely gets confusing. So the idea, the idea behind solving a PDE is this. Step one, break the spatial derivatives into this matrix. So once you have this matrix, what kind of equation do you now have? You've basically just rewritten dx by dt into some sort of, some form of matrix. So now you no longer have to deal with that godforsaken derivative. Hold and on, hold on. I was thinking that you divide the whole matrix by 2h, right? But what about the endpoints? Now you're, you're, you just have to do 1h, right? Yeah. So how do you... you just so usually, set them there's a, usually there's a coefficient outside of the matrix that then gets multiplied by the whole thing. Yeah. And, then the, and, then the, and then the corners are times 2. So then at the end of the day, like they'll, back up, they'll, they'll all cancel. Oh, you just... The input gets the... Exactly. The, the, the corners are literally get, minus oh, 2, okay. minus 2 instead um, of 1, 1 to then multiply yeah, the half two minus two. like in like like if let's say there's a half outside right like because yeah. because the one over two h so so instead of the one over two h you just take it out as a, as a coefficient and instead of everything being one one off diagonals right because you're taking one one now it's going to be two because then when you multiply it in yeah everything's going to be one well, over two h this is going to be one over h plus two not minus two though right did I say minus two? Yeah. Okay. Well, no. s signs are confusing because. But you're also gonna need like on 
in the matrix the top row it's gonna you're gonna have like two two yeah yeah, okay. yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. no exactly yeah, right yeah, you're yeah, gonna yeah. have two two and then yeah. it goes down that's exactly yeah, yeah. right so those are the those are the boundary schemes also also very important to understand it but again once we have uh discretized space that's the first step that's why it's called semi-discrete approach because we're discreting them we're discretizing them separately and now here is where the fun thing comes the fun part comes in the time uh time stepping method so what have we done right now we have converted an ordinary or partial differential equation into an ordinary or partial difference equation so instead of ode it's o delta e like capital delta for mm. difference mm. so that's its own type of equation because now the difference is literally between what like the same position just at different times so you're literally taking the difference operator so now it's a vector equation is well it's always it a vector equation oh yeah yeah, yeah i mean yeah. it's always yeah, a vector yeah, no, equation. Yeah. <laughs> but now the idea is you only have a step in time which is dx i um, mean df dt or whatever like oh, you so only you, have a thing over so time so you just you just replace your derivative operator with that matrix your position derivative operator yeah, position with, with the matrix. matrix exactly so what about the exactly. time the time one exactly so now you have the time <laughs> okay. so now you got the time equation right and how do you break this up now this is again simple derivatives we have so df by dt is literally f okay I don't really want to like start labeling things right here. That's that's probably not the smart <laughs> that's idea. Gonna... But okay, the the idea is for a just like what happens like once you replace the spatial with the matrices. Then okay, what, so like, once you, you d replace the spatial with the matrices, now it all depends on what method do you want to use. Do you want to use first order method, second order method, third order method, and that'll all change on what happens to your time. So if, for example, you want to use first order you not Euler, Euler, not Euler. Is it the Euler method? God damn, I'm forgetting the word, uh, f forgetting the individual's name. But if you want to, explicit Euler, yeah, explicit Euler method. So if you want to use, for example, RK1, which is first order method, then you will simply do a backward or a forward difference on the time operator. And now you literally have the solution at time n plus one minus the solution at time n over 2h. And that, mm -hmm. and that just gave you the solution, right? Mm -hmm. Rearrange for the solution at time n yeah. plus one. And now all of, a, yeah. all of a sudden you have an equation where the solution at time n plus one equals something times the solution at time, at, at, you, at, at, uh, at time equals n. Do you change to a central difference once you move one step ahead? Yeah, so if you go in a higher, it's not necessarily central difference. It, it goes it, like, they're weird methods. So these are all called the Runge-Kutta methods. So explicit Euler is RK1, which is like first order, uh, first order difference. So, so for example, the accuracy will only be to the first order. So it's pretty, it's pretty garbage to be honest. And as you go higher, um, RK two and RK three, I believe, um, I don't know if it's as simple as simply central difference because like RK four gets just like it just gets a little confusing. But if you actually expand them out in terms of, it's actually called Taylor tables, where all this stuff comes from. If you break down a PDE into its Taylor table all of this stuff makes sense, which is basically just Taylor expansions of, of different uh, components of the PDE. So it's, it's all, again, very well explained in the mathematics. I don't want to go too deep into that, just briefly over the, uh, over the ideas. So again, that's basically the idea, right? Once we, get, once we figure out, okay, what time step, what uh, order of accuracy do I want for my time step? Because again, the advantage of the semi-discrete again is now I could choose the order of accuracy for my space and I can choose the order of accuracy for my time separately. 
That's yeah. the whole advantage. Because in a fully discrete method, I don't have that advantage. So here I can, for example, let's say I want to be second order accurate in space and fourth order accurate in time, I can do that. Why would you choose that? Because, so usually the spatial derivatives are usually, again, people are okay with central difference. So like second order accurate is okay. And in time stepping methods, the staple use and what I'm actually currently researching are the RK4 methods, which is the fourth order Runge-Kutta methods. Why? I think it's just convention. Like it's just it's just like that level of accuracy at which it's good enough. Because to be honest, I haven't really told you the whole story. There are some other problems like RK2, like the other uh, lower order methods also have some problems with um, imaginary eigenvalues and whatnot. It, 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 it does get a little complicated. I'm actually thinking about it now. Like RK2, for example, uh, is unstable in every solution for the linear convection equation. No. Yes. 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 For, for the, for the biconvection equation. But RK4 is stable for most, for like certain values of, uh, certain values of the eigenvalues of the matrix. So, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's other advantages as well, but RK4 is kind of the staple in the industry. And that's what I'm researching. So again, very, um, I'm, I, I think that's most of CFD covered, most of, or at least most of computational physics, which is taking down, taking a partial differential equation, discretizing it in space, breaking it up in time, and then seeing, okay, how does it evolve? So let's just end it off on what am I doing? What I am doing in this particular research is this. The RK4 methods, the most famous methods to discretize time, have a problem in that they don't conserve energy. Now, you might be like, that's a pretty big problem. And you're right, it is. But in most applications, they're not really required to do certain conservations. But because of the lack of its conservation, it can't be used in applications where entropy conservation is, an, is, a, is a must. So for example, I mean, I don't want to, I don't like no practical example. I just know example from academic papers, but any entropy dissipative scenario, for example, uh, sorry, entropy conserving scenario, for example, where the entropy must be conserved, the RK4 method will literally just forever decrease the entropy, you know, things like that, where it's obviously uh, entropy unstable. You can say it like that. So my solution or what I'm doing currently is researching these things called the relaxation Runge-Kutta methods. Wait, hold on. Yeah. In the case of like some, let's say like X of T. Yeah. You're solving for X of T. Yeah. Um, if the entropy decreases, does that mean it picks out like, like it evolves kind of like sharp features in the solution? So the thing with all time stepping methods is that the solution after X amount of time is just garbage. It's just straight garbage. Like regardless of what you're using, that's just the problem with fluid dynamics. So what does it mean that entropy decreases? So the whole thing is this. So think about, okay, maybe entropy is a word because we can't really think about, I mean, I guess you can, but you can also think about energy. It's very, it's very synonymous in this case. The whole thing is that like RK4, the way that it steps in time, it, it misses every midpoint. So like the way that it steps it, I can, I mean, I wish I had a visualization here it basically misses every midpoint. So when it does n to n plus one, it uses the solution at every midpoint, but it doesn't evolve that solution. And again, um, I, I can show you like what it means, but because of that, 
the because of that, literally one part of the solution is just taken higher weight than the midpoints. Mm -hmm. So the energy literally is just incapably like incapable uh, uh, to be computed because over time what hap what happens is that okay man there's there's so much to get into um because over time what happens in all these methods is that the eigenvectors of these solutions like they damp over time and 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 that's the whole per the whole reason is because it's like for example the leapfrog method which is another method that's used not very accurate but it's a good method is energy conservant entropy conservant because it uses every point every midpoint and every uh, the solution at every point but the rungakutta methods don't do so they only use the solution at every point so again i don't know if that made too much sense because again there's a lack of a visualization here but the idea that really maybe you can just get in your head is that um Rangakara does not conserve energy because it's not taking every single possible value that it computes into consideration. Because it's computing more values than it's storing is like is maybe the way that you can think about it. And the energy just gradually decreases or gradually will simply change over time. So the idea in so in twenty nineteen, a paper came out describing these relaxation rungakara methods, which simply adds a term again i'm not going into it too much because it's, it's just math it's just literally math because that's all numerical methods but it adds a term that conserves the energy and the way it does so is my research because that's not understood because the yeah. idea is the the relaxation so it does work yeah that's the thing you so just don't know that's why i said it's not like final frontier work like you're doing like it's not like i'm discovering something it's already been it's already known to exist it's already known to work but we don't know why and how it works. And what I'm finding out right now is some really cool stuff that, again, I can't really even get into because then I have to explain, like, all this stuff that maybe is ripe for another episode because I know you can go in really deep too. So maybe is ripe for another episode, but just keeping it light, I think all I can really say is I'm trying to discover what makes these methods conserve energy because even my professor himself doesn't know. I mean, again, that's the whole point of doing research, right? And very fascinating stuff to me because obviously if it does work, then again, all solvers, like computational fluid dynamic solvers, like applications that, you know, industries and what use, all of them can be modified to now include these relaxation methods because they will have, you know, just a greater order of, again, in certain methods. If, for example, I, I don't really know what application needs this particular use but i'm sure there are because who doesn't need an energy conserving time stepping method so that's basically the thing that i'm studying i know i, I know i've glossed over a lot of stuff i know you have too uh, in your explanation but hopefully that made sense and was enjoyable for uh, the few of you that uh, listened got on this podcast um <laughs> anything else that uh, you wish to mention i guess that is everything yeah um, yeah hopefully we will see you soon <laughs> we, i guess that's all that's all we can really say um i think we will try because the thing is we had some really really good episodes planned for december and then i got sick and then he oh, went on vacation yeah we actually have the next episode that we're going to record is going to be um on group theory oh we're doing that one next yeah. okay sure and we're we're, we're gonna With, do it with uh, zach yeah. wolski again yes sir he, yes sir we did um combinatorics and with him yeah 
it we was, did. It was an online. Oh, you one. mean the first? The no, that was not online. That was that the was, second one. Oh, the second. second. One. The first one was in person. Oh yeah, we've had like oh damn, just two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first, yeah. First we've actually already person. had them. He he told me that he for the group theory episode he prepared some fun problems. For oh us. lord, so our brains are gonna get <laughs> picked. Yeah, that's oh, gonna be my. fun. Anyways, so I guess yeah. I mean, let us know. I don't know. This was an interesting type of episode because again, it's kind of, it's kind of talking about our personal stuff, I guess, in and not really something general. I mean, I guess we were still talking about the topics. Let us know if you want us to go deeper in these topics because again, the the world of computational physics is is vast, and especially with AO mm-hmm. being as new as it is, I'm sure that is too. So yeah, I mean, as usual, let us know any episode recommendations. We're definitely taking them in right now. Um, yeah. Thank you so much yeah, for, nothing else. Uh, for listening and we will see you next time. I yeah, what? Yeah, you, yeah. am your host, Parker. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Ray and we will see you soon. Bye, guys.